During the last 25 years, thousands of Christians have left a historic mainline congregation and begun several new denominations. I've often thought that these Christians left their denomination because they disagreed uh, over gay marriage. Recently, however, a pastor friend who is closer to the conversation than I am clarified the issue for me. Although discussion about the split often centers around sexual orientation and gay marriage, he wrote, the issues have much more to do with orthodoxy. The reality is a number of the denomination's leaders deny the fundamental tenets of the faith as defined by the creeds. When that happens, my friend said, it's time to leave. Well, this winter, we are asking a question many Christians are struggling with these days. How do we stay faithful to Scripture while pursuing unity at the same time? Every church has to decide what their doctrinal center is. Every church must ask, what are the core beliefs we all can affirm together? Here's how All Souls answers this question. All Souls wants to be a church where Christians who disagree about important questions of biblical interpretation can live together in loving unity. We strive towards this vision by affirming the Nicene Creed while respecting, challenging, and learning from our brothers and sisters who interpret the Bible differently on non-creedal issues. Our center at All Souls is the Nicene Creed, and this means that unity at any price is unity at too high a price. We cannot have true unity while denying fundamental beliefs in the creed. And I think I understand and agree with what my friend is saying. Uh, there is a line that you can't cross. Even though I have strong convictions, for example, about what the Bible says on sexuality, I can fellowship with other Christians in our community who read the scriptures differently on that. We can figure out what it looks like to live under the authority of God's word in that. But I could never remain in a faith community that denied the creed. To affirm the creed is to believe in the gospel story outlined in the creed. We've described believing as changing scripts. Everyone has a script. Informed by our culture, our wounds, and our fallenness, we all create stories to help us make sense of our lives. We're the author, director, and stars of our own play. These scripts always fail us, however, because we were never meant to be the author of our own story. We become believers when we reject the scripts we've been performing and take a part in the great play God is producing. Conversion, then, is changing scripts. Believing is deciding that you are no longer going to be the author and star of your own story. Instead, you're accepting a role in the greatest play ever produced, Accepting your role in this great play will require a significant reorientation of your life. Now, we can think of the drama of salvation as a play with four acts. Act 1, creation. Act 2, fall. Act 3, redemption. Act 4, new creation. The Christian life is like coming on stage somewhere in the middle of the third act and improvising. But if you're going to do a good job playing your role, you need to know the whole story. And the creed can help us here. The creed summarizes the four acts of the play for us. Act 1 begins by introducing us to the main character of the play, the supremely powerful creator God. This powerful, almighty God is also a loving father. 
He cares for the first human beings like a father cares for his children. The opening act ends in shalom. All is well. Adam and Eve are at peace with one another, with God, and with all creation. In every story, however, something goes wrong that has to be fixed. All stories have a central conflict, a major problem that must be resolved. The creed doesn't give many lines to the problem God must overcome in our play, but the answer is there nonetheless. We need saving. Act 2 explains why. We are sinners. We are all children of Adam and Eve. We all manage our anxiety by authoring false stories we think will make us safe and happy. We are all idolaters. Instead of turning to God for life-giving water, we drink from the muddy puddles of our addictions. We end Act 2 in desperate need for a guide, a hero who will save us. We need a Savior. Act 3 introduces us to our Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. The Creed gives most of its lines to describing who he is, what he has done for us, and how we can become a part of his story. These lines of the Creed remind us of a very important biblical truth about Jesus. And I'm thinking of the, the, the next lines in the Creed that we studied last week. Jesus is God. The Nicene Fathers piled adjective upon adjective to sum up the Scripture's unanimous witness that Jesus Christ is fully divine. And last week we pointed out this is one of the core beliefs of Christianity. This is not a truth over which good Christians can disagree. This is one of which all Christians in all places and all times have always believed. But that still doesn't answer the question of how Jesus saves us. And the next line of the creed begins to answer that. Who, speaking of Jesus, who for us men, for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. The creed says that the one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, this divine Christ, for us men and for our salvation, came down from heaven. There are two Greek words for men. One refers to the male gender, while the other refers more broadly to all people. The fathers chose the second word. Jesus came down from heaven for the salvation of all people. Jesus comes to earth for our salvation. An angel explained this to Joseph even before Jesus was born. Joseph was wondering whether or not he should marry his pregnant fiancée. Go ahead and marry her, the angel told Joseph. Then after the baby is born, name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Well, save, that's a word that we throw around a lot. What do we mean when we talk about salvation? Well, for many, salvation means being forgiven of sin and going to heaven when you die. We celebrate this aspect of salvation in our Appalachian hymn nights. Life for many people, uh, mountain people, was a crushing grind of misery and hunger. They loved hymns that looked forward to the day when they would not have to suffer anymore. Take the hymn, I'll Fly Away. 
Some glad morning when this life is over, I'll fly away to a home on God's celestial shore. I'll fly away, fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. When I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. When the shadows of this life have gone, I'll fly away. Like a bird from prison bars has flown, I'll fly away. Just a few more weary days and then I'll fly away to a land where joy shall never end. I'll fly away. The biblical idea of salvation certainly includes the hope of flying away from our weary earth like a bird fleeing from a prison cage. But the early Christians meant more than this when they spoke of salvation. The best book I've read on the creed is by Luke Timothy Johnson, a New Testament scholar and Catholic theologian. Professor Johnson explains how the early Christians thought about salvation in this quote. The best way to know what the early Christians meant by salvation is to observe what they said about their new experience. The most astonishing aspect of the early Christian claims was that they seemed so disproportionate to their actual worldly circumstances. Christian communities were small, isolated, beleaguered, disliked, having no claim to power of any manifest sort. Yet from the first, believers made cosmic claims. They made such claims because they'd experienced something that justified making them. What was that experience? The earliest writings expressed this experience in several ways. They had been liberated from cosmic forces. They were freed as well from repressive systems of human law. They were freed from their fear of death. When Christians spoke of salvation in their earliest writings, they did not speak of it as a theory or an ideal. Their language expresses an actual human experience. They were being saved. The New Testament writers use a wide variety of images to describe this experience of being saved. Sometimes they use the Greek word for salvation, sozo, to describe healing. For example, when Jesus heals a woman who touches his garment, Matthew says, at that moment she was healed. But Matthew uses the word sozo to describe the healing. Literally, Matthew says of the healed woman, at that moment she was saved. Being saved is being healed. The Apostle John describes salvation as experiencing new life. I come so that everyone would have life and have it in its fullness, Jesus says. Everyone who has faith in the Son has eternal life. Being saved is experiencing life in its fullness. The Apostle Paul often uses the metaphor of a courtroom to describe salvation. We as sinners stand before a judge who must punish us for our sins. At the moment he declares us guilty, the judge's son walks forward from the back of the courtroom, extends his arms to the jailer, and becomes a prisoner in our place. He ultimately pays the death penalty so that we might go free. Now we see how God makes us acceptable to him, Paul writes. God accepts people only because they have faith in Jesus Christ. Even when we were God's enemies, he made peace with us because his son died for us. Being saved then means being forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God. The Hebrew writers often talk of salvation as being rescued. 
A devout Jew often remembered that she worshipped the God who saved her people from Pharaoh's armies. Listen to this Jewish hymn. You were true to your name, the psalmist sings. You, sings. you rescued them to prove how mighty you are. You said to the Red Sea, dry up. Then you led your people across on land as dry as a desert. You saved all of them. Being saved means being rescued. One writer sums up the broad biblical use of the word salvation in the New Testament like this. In the scriptures, salvation can mean deliverance from enemies, physical danger, death, disability, demonic powers, illness, poverty, injustice, social exclusion, false accusation, shame, and of course, sin and its consequences. Now, let's think for a moment what salvation might look like in the life of my friend Gus. I met Gus at Carm's Launch Point class last September. Gus gave uh, me permission to share his story. Gus was an engineering student at the University of Colorado Boulder in 1971. One balmy afternoon, Gus looked out of his classroom in the engineering building at a bunch of his fellow classmates partying on the lawn. He decided they were having more fun. He took his tie off headed out to join the hippies in the party and got stoned. Gus regrets this decision now. He's fought addiction all his life. Gus has good contracting skills, but it's been hard to make ends meet when you are struggling with addiction. Gus wound up living in a house for free as he worked to repair it. But he invited the wrong people into his home one night, got sideways with his landlord, and found himself on the street. That's when he showed up at Carm. Gus went through the Launch Point program, then stayed in their transitional housing unit for a few weeks. Now he's living in another house that he's helping repair. He's hit some bumps, but when I spoke with him Friday, he said his life was definitely headed in the right direction. The Creed says that Jesus, the Son of God, became man for Gus's salvation. What does it mean for Gus to be saved? It means that Jesus has made it possible for Gus's sins to be forgiven and for him to have peace with God. It means Jesus is healing Gus. It means Jesus has made it possible for Gus to enjoy a full and meaningful life. It means Jesus is rescuing Gus from his addictions and his homelessness. If Act 2 taught us anything, it's that we are all Gus. We all need salvation. We all need to be forgiven of our sins and reconciled with God. We all need healing. We all need life. We all need rescue. The Creed says that God's rescue operation would not have worked had the Son remained in heaven. He had to come down for our salvation. Here the fathers are thinking of a verse from Paul's letter to the Christians in Philippi. Christ was truly God, but he did not try to remain equal with God. Instead, he gave up everything and became a slave when he became like one of us. Jesus clearly understood that he had come down from heaven for this rescue mission. Referring to himself as the bread of life, Jesus says, The bread that God gives is the one who came down from heaven to give life to the world. At another place, he says, I didn't come from heaven to do what I want. I came to do what the Father wants me to do. 
The Holy Trinity has decided that the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve cannot be saved long distance. The Son must come down for our salvation. The Son chooses to pursue us, to put himself at risk in order to come and rescue us from the prison of sin. The Son moves towards us to save us. And think about what he left. The perfection of heaven, union perfectly with the Father and the Spirit, the praise of all the angels to live in a world where he would know the suffering of being a human being. You know, sometimes the creeds are criticized as being too Greek. Uh, Sometimes the idea is, is that they have taken on too much Greek philosophy. Well, uh, I understand the critique, but uh, the Greek philosophers knew nothing of a God like this. As a matter of fact, one of them, Aristotle, uh, called God the unmoved mover, Um, whereas here we see the most moved mover. Why does Jesus come down to rescue us? It is because he loves us. John explains this in his first epistle. God is love, the apostle writes. God showed his love for us when he sent his only son into the world to give us life. You know, everyone coming into the world is asking, am I loved? We never stop asking that question. I hear people ask it on their deathbeds. Our search for love is one of the most powerful forces surging through our lives, all of our lives. We need love in order to flourish as human beings. So where do we find love? The Christian story answers this question like this. Jesus loves me. He proved his love for me by becoming a man and coming down from heaven for my salvation. Jesus loves me. This is the heart of the creed and the essence of the gospel. Karl Barth, the brilliant 20th century theologian, wrote volume after volume of very dense philosophical theology that even trained professionals struggle to read. Towards the end of his life, Dr. Barth was asked in a news conference to summarize what he'd learned after 50 years of studying the Bible. Jesus loves me, this I know, the gray-haired professor quietly responded. For the Bible tells me so. The stories we live by all try to answer that question, where do I find love? How have you searched for love in your story? I received an email this week from someone who is changing her story because of what she is learning about her own search for love. I asked permission to share parts of it with you. She begins by talking about searching for love in a special friendship that has now ended. And then she says, one of the things I loved so much about her was the way she made me feel free to be myself. I felt so truly me and so very loved by her that once I got a taste of it, I wanted more. Ending our relationship felt like I was losing that gift. After the sermon on belief, however, I realized that I don't need another human to facilitate my becoming. She goes on to describe how living from the center of God's love is freeing her to become the woman God wants her to be. She's learning a lot about herself in the process. I live out of false scripts that I try to use to order my life. 
I live out of a false identity that I think will help me relate to people. In order to enter the story that God has written, I not only have to choose to abandon my false scripts, many of them coming from places of insecurity and wounds, but I also want to continue to adopt the characteristics that he has already crafted into my own being. This includes truths about who I am as a daughter, image bearer, and worthy woman, but also includes characteristics specific to me. Right now, God and I are talking through some of the ways I've tried to be someone I'm not out of fear and insecurity. This is exciting and this is scary. This young woman is learning through the painful ending of a friendship that she was searching for love in the wrong place. Gus is searching for love, too. I think he'd say that his life got off track when he started for looking for love in wrong places. I hear hope when I speak with Gus, though. The hope that comes from someone who knows he is loved by God. A few years ago, when Gus was at a very low point in his life, a friend invited him to hear James Davis preach at Eternal Life Harvest Center. Gus, as the old Puritans would have put it, was seized by a great affection that day. He became a Christian. He met God's love. Like all of us, Gus still has daily struggles, but he can bear those struggles with hope and joy now because he's become part of a bigger story, a story about Jesus' love. What does your story tell you about how you have searched for love? Part of being saved is turning away from lesser lovers and turning to the love of Jesus Christ. The following phrase in the creed explains how Jesus became man. He was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became human. The story of Jesus' birth is found in the opening chapters of Matthew and Luke's Gospels. Here's how Matthew tells the story. This is how Jesus Christ was born. A young woman named Mary was engaged to Joseph from King David's family, but before they were married, she learned that she was going to have a baby by God's Holy Spirit. Joseph was a good man and did not want to embarrass Mary in front of everyone, so he decided to quietly call off the wedding. While Joseph was thinking about this, an angel from the Lord came to him in a dream. The angel said, Joseph, the baby that Mary will have is from the Holy Spirit. Go ahead and marry her. And then after her baby is born, name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So the Lord's promise came true, just as the prophet had said. A virgin will have a baby boy, and he will be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. After Joseph woke up, he and Mary were soon married, just as the Lord's angel had told him to do. But they did not sleep together before her baby was born. Then Joseph named him Jesus. This story tells us that Jesus was conceived in the womb of his mother Mary without a human father by a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. The story of the virgin birth teaches us that Jesus is a human being. Just like us, he came into the world just like us. He will eventually die just like us. Jesus is fully human. He thirsts, he hungers, he becomes tired, he weeps. The Greek word the fathers chose for incarnate means to enter humanity, and that is exactly what he did. He takes on all the limitations of humanity 
when he comes to live among us. He becomes a man. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, the fact that Jesus was fully human means Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. Henry Nouwen, the beloved writer and priest, taught at Notre Dame, Yale, and Harvard before spending a year as a resident priest at a home for the mentally disabled called Larch. During that year, he wrote a tiny book about the three temptations Jesus faced in the desert and talked frankly about the temptations he was facing at the time. Father Nouwen describes them as the temptation to be relevant, the temptation to be spectacular, and the temptation to be powerful. And those are the core temptations all of us face, I suppose, and Jesus faced them all. As the writer of the book of Hebrews says, Jesus understands every weakness of ours because he was tempted in every way that we are, but he didn't sin. It's so encouraging to remember when you're at prayer, when you're struggling with uh, discouragement or anxiety or wondering if God will come through for you or all the things that we wrestle with. Remember that we have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he became human. He knows what it's like to be human. Like Gus, Jesus knew the temptation to fear when a cold front was blowing in and he didn't know where he was going to sleep that night. He knew the temptation to despair. He knew the temptation to trust in lesser gods. He knew all the temptations of the flesh. When we pray to him, we're praying to a God who knows all the sorrows and joys of being a human being. The fact that Jesus was fully human means Jesus is the perfect example of a Christian life. He is a human being fully and completely devoted to serving the Father on earth. Therefore, he is the consummate illustration of what it looks like to be a Christian. He is the ultimate picture of what it means to be fully alive in God. Do you want to know how to pray? Look at Jesus. Do you want to know how a man should relate to a woman? Look at Jesus. Do you want to know how to care for the poor? Look at Jesus. Do you want to know how to face death? Look at Jesus. Do you want to know how to have a full and meaningful life? Then look at Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate model of the Christian life. The fact that Jesus was fully human finally means that his death truly pays for our sins. Some alien did not die on the cross for us. He was one of us and therefore could truly offer a sacrifice in our behalf. And this may seem like philosophical nitpicking, but the incarnation was very important to the fathers because they found in the incarnation the best description of Jesus as both fully human and fully divine. And they believe Jesus must be both fully God and fully man to truly save us. Nobody argued this more forcefully at the Council of Nicaea than young Athanasius. If Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son, is not true God from true God, then we are not saved, for it is only God who can save, Athanasius argued. But if Jesus Christ is not truly man, then salvation does not touch our human existence and condition. I was reading an article recently about some research at Johns Hopkins and NYU. 
And the researchers are, are starting to use psychedelic drugs, hallucinogens, hallucinogens like LSD, for cancer patients and people struggling with addictions. And what they're finding is that in these controlled environments, the patients are having mystical experiences, and many of them come back saying that they have experienced God, that they have met the love of God and known the love of God. And when they return, they have peace to face cancer, death, and end of life, or power to overcome addiction. <laughs> now, from reading the article, I don't get any sense that uh, the, the researchers are living out of a Christian narrative at all. But what they found is that if they can create through drugs a mystical experience in which a patient encounters the love of God, they die better and live better. And that can't help but remind us of the Christian story. Matter of fact, if I may say so, it reminds me that we've got a great story. We can know the love of God. We know that love through Jesus Christ because he became man. And when we live in that love, when that love is the center of our life, this love prepares us to die and prepares us to live. This is part of the core. This is part of our story. This is one of the essentials. There are many things that good Christians can disagree upon and do and always will. The belief that Jesus Christ is a man and came to earth for our salvation.